Blog Talk Radio.
Thank you. 
with Art Tatum, please. Yes, it is, Art. Art, uh, sorry to invade your privacy. I know you're a busy guy, but we uh, conduct live on-the-air interviews by way of phone and proxy. We wanted the audience to meet you because we have so many uh, people who listen to Art Tatum and have revered him during the years, and we wanted to talk to him personally. Right. How are you tonight? <clears throat> Pretty good, Larry. I know uh, there's one thing in particular that was mentioned in one of our party-line calls the other night. Oscar Peterson, the young Canadian pianist, mentioned that... Uh, well, the the three pianists that uh, influenced him the most were Art Tatum, Nat Cole, and Teddy Wilson. We've always wondered who influenced you and inspired you to play the way you uh, do. Well, I can say that by saying Lee Sims and Fats Waller. And they were the people that uh, influenced you the most. That's correct. What did you like uh, uh, about Lee Sims, for example? Well, I mean, they had a beautiful technique, and I mean, it was something that I had never heard before, so I guess that's, you know... And how about Fats, the spirit of... All things, huh? Well, I mean, that's, that's close without saying that a lot of people never knew the appreciation of Fats Waller, I mean, because of the fellow's entertainment uh, ideas, but also he was a great pianist. Do you like uh, the modern style of piano? It was played by, well, say, such people as Bud Powell? Yes, I, I, uh, I appreciate, uh, let's say, progressive jazz, or bop, as you might call it. However, I don't, uh, don't think it gives the left hand as much to do as it should. Uh-huh, and that left hand belongs to you. Well, I mean, that's, that belongs to any pianist, I think. Should, uh, any good <coughs> pianist should have uh, two good hands. I should say so. Well, you know, there seems to be quite a difference in the in the makeup and the personality of the modern musician and the, the gentleman of your school. Well, what do you think about that? That is, uh, there is a distinct difference. I don't know. Oh, well, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I can't, I can't say on that. I wouldn't say that because... I met some uh, very, very nice young chaps around here, and they're very eager to, to get ahead, uh, such as Oscar Peterson, I think, who I think uh, is going to do a lot more. I don't think he's even reached his uh, height yet. Have you ever heard of a, a young American by the name of Calvin Jackson up in Toronto, Canada? Yes, I know him very well. I've known him for a long time. You see, he's vastly underrated, isn't he? Oh, I should say so. And he's a great composer and arranger as well. Art, uh... How long ago did you start in the music business? Must have been what? Oh, let's see. That's, uh, I tell you that, I'll have to be telling my age, which I'm 43 years old. <laughs> and uh, I started fair. in Toledo, Ohio, say about uh, 1924, 23, 24, when I was about 14 years old. And uh, did you play around radio stations in that area? Yes, I did. WSPD, WTA in Cleveland, SPD in uh, Toledo, WWTA in Detroit. Uh -huh. So I'm... I've done quite a bit of that work. 
I should say. Well, now, it certainly is an inspiration talking to you. Wish we had more time on the party line. It's almost 10 o'clock bandstand time over there. So uh, we'd like to thank you very much for taking oh, this time off. It's a real pleasure. I mean, any time I'd be glad to with you. Come and visit the 1280 Club, W.O.V. New York. Bye. Bye. We'd love to visit with you. Bye. Bye-bye. Just a few minutes ago, the solo attraction here at the Embers Club is none other than the great, the one and only Art Tatum. And before he goes on the bandstand, I thought it might be a good idea to have a few words from him. Art, it's been quite a long time since you were overseas. Wasn't it, uh, how long are you? Oh, 1937, 1938. Uh, that is in person in Europe, you mean? Yes, Atlanta. when you were in England. Were yeah, we on the continent? Right. No. Just uh, yes, I, I used to go over every Sunday, though. Oh, I see. But that was the yeah, extent of many your... Many cars, I used to go over here many on Sunday, too, because uh, I was working in London, and therefore it, uh, you don't work in London on Sunday. On Sunday. You know? Oh, I yeah. see. And that was the only chance you got to go to uh, yeah. France, right? Yeah, that's right. And there's still a lot of territories you'd have to cover, in the, maybe I, in the near future. I imagine. Well, I think you're ready for a European or an international tour. Because well, I don't know. I, uh, I'm kind of afraid of it. But well, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that know you from your records. In fact, it might be a good point to ask you, uh, what do you think is perhaps the outstanding record that you've ever made? I oh, Leonard. I think that's a difficult kinda, question, but... Uh, that's kind of rough, but I'll tell you what I think is one of my best. One that? that I like best uh-huh. is Deep Purple. I made it on a Decca record a long time ago, and like my humoresque that I did. Well, that's the two great selections. Personally, I will go for Sweet Lorraine. That is a well, very special favorite of, of mine. Uh, that came out of the album with uh, humoresque. That's, that's right. That was a but, wonderful uh, album. We have a Capitol album, and uh, I've got to write Sing the Blues, a pretty good thing. Everybody likes it, Dancing in the Dark, so I don't know. Well, you have a very wide selection. Fortunately, you're well represented on records, and the records have gone all over the world. I hope you will go where the records have gone in person one of these days. Maybe you can give us another answer to a a question that might be of interest to a lot of people. That is, who do you think are the outstanding young pianists that have come up in the last few years that are great favorites of yours? Well, I'll tell you. That's a difficult thing for me to say because I love all pianists, Leonard. Well, I know that, but I I love Teddy Wilson. I love Joey Bushkin. I love, uh, of course, the great Pat's Wall is dead. You know what I mean? Yes, but there are some uh, kind and of And I think Oscar up. Peterson plays very good piano. He's wonderful. And uh, uh, I also like George Shearing, uh-huh. whom I think uh, does a whole lot with a, with a group. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's does. so beautiful, yeah. you know? I believe Hank Jones is one of your favorites. Yes, too, he is, me? yeah. I mean, it, it, that's why I said I don't want to start calling off names because there's so many guys that, that play beautifully. You're afraid you might forget something. That's yeah. right, and I don't want to be the fellow to forget. Well, Art, we'll just let, leave it this way. We'll See, poor Art Tatum is uh, getting older and <laughs> cannot play anymore. Well, we're going to disprove that right now, Art. We want to thank you for the, interview, the opportunity to interview you here, and we'd like you to go up on the bandstand right now. And prove once and for all that the last remark you made is completely unjustified. No, I mean, that's a, that's a real pleasure, and I'm glad you come in. And uh, uh, any time, Leonard, you can do this, I, it's a pleasure for me. Well, a pleasure it's is my mutual. pleasure. Thank you very much. All right.
I met Art in the early 30s. I met him in Chicago at the Three Deuces. And I was working at a radio station, WJJD and WIND in Chicago. And a friend of mine come over to me, and at that time I was playing piano with Jackie Gleason. And uh, I had my trio, and uh, I was destined to be, in my mind, a piano player. And a friend of mine came over to me, and he says, I hope you're sitting down because I got a record that I want you to hear. And uh, it was a humor-esque or St. Louis blues, one of those numbers, of Art Tatum. And I heard Art Tatum for the first time, and I went into shock. I could not believe what I heard. And I quit playing the piano right then and there and went to the guitar. City Park in Toledo. I know when I was in Toledo in 1932, I lived right across the street from him. And he was about maybe at that time about 17, well, maybe he's a little old, maybe he was about 20 years old, 18. And he used to send off, he used to buy all of Earl Hines' records because Earl Hines was one of his favorite musicians. And when I first went there, well, I was musical director for uh, Frank Terry's uh, Chicago Nightingales. I was about 22 then. We used to play at the Recreation Ballroom, and every Monday night we gave a colored dance. This Monday we were playing this dance, and I, uh, we had intermission, and I was getting ready to go out and get me a drink or something, and Frank says to me, he said, wait a minute, I want you to hear something. I said, what do you want me to hear? I was anxious to get out. He says, I want you to hear a pianist. I said, oh, I've heard all the piano players. I heard Earl Hines or Frank Hines. I heard Fats. I heard all these fellas. I don't need to hear nobody play now. And as I was going out, they brought this blind kid up on uh, uh, the stand, and he sat down, and as I reached the door, he made a big arpeggio uh, on the piano and went into Tiger Rag on the piano. I switched, turned right around, and went back up there to listen to him play. And it was just fantastic.
I gave up that night. I I I I gave up the day I heard it on the on, on the on the record, but I went down to hear him that night. He says he uh, he's appearing live at 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 the Three Deuces in Chicago. When I heard him at the Three Deuces, I said, "My God Almighty, what that man is doing!" When he played his run, he'd be a B flat, an A flat, and a G flat, and the next note would be a D. Now the thumb glissed across, played a D and a C, and then he was back to his B flat again. And he goes, and he's going down, and he's playing that run, and he plays flat hand piano. So he's not playing this way, he's playing down like this. So no matter how close you look at art, the hand looks almost motionless. So you just hear, and you're hearing a million notes, and his hands aren't moving at all. They just went from here to there. The one thing you will know is when he goes, stink, and he goes up and hits that note, and he goes, boom. That you will notice. Or if he reaches for his handkerchief and he's making a gigantic run, right? Those things. father of stride piano was, in most pianists' judgment, James P. Johnson. And he was the one who made the leap from what had been Scott Joplin's ragtime into something entirely different. This became what has since been called stride piano. The left hand was lengthened. The stride physically was greater. And often contain a counter melody in the bass notes to something else, for example. People like James P. and uh, others, uh, Willie the Lion, certainly uh, exemplified that sound. They were the transitional players, and of course then Fats Waller came along and then Tatum, because you hear a lot of Fats Waller stride in Tatum's stride. This is one of Fats Wallace's compositions you might recognize. Him. became less deliberate, less obvious, more flowing still, and began to uh, take on dimensions in the right hand 
which were uh, something uh, that hadn't been heard much before. If he were to be playing that same eight misbehaving, well, it would come out more like, like this. that my father clubbed at Artate and worked that my father would come in and he wouldn't ask my father to play and vice versa. There's no place that my father would be working and he'd see Artate and come in the club that he couldn't play. One time in the club, he said, when Artate came in the club, he said, God's in the house. So he had a whole lot of respect for him. Tiny Grimes, the guitar player that, that played with my father and Artate told me that they were the two greatest jazz piano players that ever lived. My father and Art Tatum. That was the roots to come from in those days. They were piano players that played the entire orchestra because they had been playing in places like where in Baldwin, not ballrooms, but they'd been playing in, in uh, apartment houses where you go by a house flat in Chicago was loaded with that. Where you have a flat where the guys come by after hours and you can buy some food and meet some nice ladies and sit around the dining room and eat and drink and have a lovely time. And he had a piano player in the corner. So he had to play the whole bit. There wasn't, there wasn't room for a clarinet or a saxophone or a bass. So when you stride, he played the whole thing.
My mother was born in Virginia, my father in, in North Carolina. But they came there at young ages. My father played a little piano, a little ragtime, but nothing basic. There was always music in the house, radio or the roller piano. Spent a small fortune sending him to a blind handicapped school in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, he developed this talent as he progressed year by year. They fostered it, you know, if they saw he could do something. I mean, I imagine someone say, hey, let him play the piano, okay? He had a teacher, Mr. Ramey, piano teacher, who helped him with his initial basics. But after that, it was he on his own. He started getting uh, work in the clubs. Uh, he followed Teddy Wilson. Teddy Wilson was the house pianist and band for Lou Greiner. And then um, Teddy left, and then Art took over his uh, position. Toledo was one of the most unusual cities at that time. There was no racial conflict there. Never has been in Toledo, Ohio. That was unusual in Ohio at the time. He played there about five years, four to five years, and then he got this opportunity with Hadley. to him and he responded to her and I think they had a good relationship which was going to be terminated eventually anyway because of his popularity and things like that but they had a good relationship and he speaks always spoke well of Adeline and her the opportunity that she gave him to be known and to perform it became evident that he was uh, a star in his own right because he drew a great deal of applause for his solo performances during the Adelaide Hall singing performances. And in 1933, he did make his first records for Brunswick, which were solos. There were four records made at that time. And they took the, the music world by storm. Certainly the jazz musicians were overwhelmed to find this tremendous talent. And they really didn't know where it had come from or uh, who his uh, inspirations were. He himself... Uh, uh, stated that Fats Waller was his primary inspiration. There was a piano player named Lee Sims who exerted a great deal of influence on him with his harmonic style. Sims was not a jazz performer, but he had some interesting ideas of harmony and had written a book on the subject. 
those players who were the prominent figures in stride piano, like James P. Johnson and uh, people like Earl Hines and, and others, were uh, astonished at his facility and the, uh, the new harmonies that he brought into the music, the, the rhythmic intensity and, and complexity of the music. And um, he continued to be a solo performer of some uh, considerable note in those days. could play a tune for half an hour and never play the same thing twice. Play a tune for half an hour and never say play the same chorus twice. He'd never make the mistake of making the same run twice. His mind would always be thinking. He could just sit up for half an hour, 45 minutes, play a tune, and every time he'd come around, he'd be playing something else. He's a fantastic man. Tatum's greatness, I think, is grounded first, and this may be surprising because many people would say first in his technique, I don't think so. I think first in his ability as a musician to do what Waller did in a different way, to create improvisations uh, that were almost limitless in, in their inventiveness. Uh, lots of different tricks, I think, are in Tatum's vocabulary as they were in Waller's vocabulary. By that I mean not stride tricks, not decorative figures that are applied to a melodic line, but uh, ways of going up and down the keyboard, of using uh, patterns uh, of runs, uh, five, six note runs repeated over and over, up, way up and down the keyboard, using the whole extent of the keyboard. And what Tatum does is to apply these in different situations the way Waller did, in his, but with an enormous amount of variety and inventiveness all over the keyboard. Rhythmically, he's completely unpredictable. Harmonically, he enriches the language that Waller bequeathed to him to the same extent that Waller enriched the language that was likewise bequeathed to him. In other words, it's, it's taken that much further. Uh, the way he alters chords and transposes a phrase in the middle of the phrase is shocking and new, and yet somehow it's right. It works. Um, he certainly defined, however, what 
great piano jazz playing would be for, for the boppers. Uh, clearly one had to have a, a flawless technique, Waller did, but Tatum's technique was even greater than Waller. And I didn't mean to suggest when I said that I don't find that his technique is the most important thing about him, that it wasn't important. He couldn't have done anything he did without having that enormous fluency. Tatum's technique was universally regarded as the most prodigious, uh, the finest, the most powerful, um, and still is, I think, today. People, people regard him as uh, an outsized pianist, a pianist whose technique is beyond imitation. Uh, it's, it's anyone who hears Tatum for the first time simply wonders, how does he move his fingers so fast? because they literally fly over the keyboard, they're blur. Um, there are ways to learn how to do his runs, but they involve cheating using th just these three fingers uh, all the time, up and down, down the keyboard. When Waller heard Tatum play, uh, there obviously would have been an element of competition involved, but having heard Tatum, I think Waller recognized that Tatum indeed was the genius that he was proclaimed to be, that, that no other pianist could really touch him as a, as a technician and as a musician in, in many ways. But Tatum's basis, too, is also stride. And again, occasionally, even in some of the most mind-boggling and complex improvisations on the standard repertoire that Tatum does, uh, you will suddenly hear just a bit a very small bit of stride, but it's there. It says to a listener, these are my roots, this is where I came from. Um, that tradition is passed even further beyond Tatum uh, to Thelonious Monk, oddly enough, perhaps the most avant-garde pianist of his day. 
uh, the most experimental, the most likely to do things that even other jazz musicians would find difficult to accept. up and quadrupled up the passing tones from uh, uh, instead of doing that if he that sort of thing was in one aspect what Charlie Parker brought to uh, jazz quite a bit later Parker's uh, innovations were so universal that they affected every player of every instrument. It's clear that Parker was familiar with what Tatum had done on the piano, and I think it's easy to say that Tatum's harmonic knowledge opened up Parker's and showed him the way. And then also, just the very rapidity with which Tatum played was something that Parker seemed to be trying to do. And with Tatum, when fast, fast, flighty things like that, you hear you hear Bird playing that way often, little rapid notes and connecting things, because Tatum wasn't only doing these patterns. He wasn't doing only those runs and, and things I was showing before. He would he would he would actually get into a single tone line by combining them all and running from one to another. was getting to be very close to what Parker was developing, or would develop somewhat later. Peterson is the pianist who, when he wishes to, can probably come closest to Tatum's uh, command of the instrument. Oscar, of course, plays a great many different ways. But Oscar, among other things, can replicate Tatum's style very well. And he, is, he has a marvelous technique, and he can, uh, he can do that. And also, Oscar, unlike some other pianists, cares about playing solo piano as well as he plays with, uh, with accompaniments such as Ray Brown and so forth. He also is a marvelous solo pianist.
Tatum was staying at a, at a hotel on 8th Avenue. I think it was the Braddock, an old beaten-up hotel. <laughs> I don't know why he stayed there, perhaps because there was no other hotel available. But anyway, he stayed there, and he was working at the Three Deuces uh, down on 52nd Street. But um, during this period, uh, I had become uh, friendly with Tatum in Buffalo, New York, just be prior to coming to New York. He used to play at a club up there called McVans, and we used to always go there and hear his last set after we finished playing up there. But anyway, when we came to New York, uh, Tatum would have this habit of going to all the after-hour spots that he could find, you know, wherever, wherever there was a piano. That's where he would go. So one night, uh, he wanted to go to this club, and so he said, hey, let's, let's go there. So I took him there. He couldn't see very well, you know. So we went down there, and when um, we got there, um, let's see, there, there was... Marlo Morris, who was a fairly big name in New York at the time, as a stride piano player and whatever. Teddy Wilson, I believe, was there. Oh, there were about 10 or 15 pianists there, and they all played. And Tatum, I don't know how he did it, but he inveigled me to get up there and play. I had no business even in there, you know, with all these great pianists. And then after that, Tatum got up and played. And as usual, he just made a complete... Um, he washed every, the, the term is, you've heard the term, washed everybody away. He washed everybody away. The slate was clean. You know. And, of course, he did some phenomenal things, as he always did whenever he sat down to the piano. The man was incredible. And you, you forgot about everything else that had happened before that. unique ability is he had this unique touch to get the most out of any instrument and there are very few pianists who can do that he could for instance uh, play on a piano that was let's say considerably less than perfect you know which means it was a rotten piano <laughs> but he could take a piano like that and make it sound like a, a baldwin concert grand we're in a joint one night and there was five keys sticking down and we're under a mortuary Okay? And we had to walk by a guy that was on a drain board. 
And he said to me, what do I smell? I says, that's formaldehyde. I says, we're, we're, on a, we're en route through a mortuary, but we're going to jam in the back. Now, this particular night, it was Chitterson was playing the piano, Herman Chitterson. And Art says, that's a lousy piano. And Chitterson's going like this, and some of the keys aren't going down, so there's some teeth missing in what he's playing. So I'd say, now that, that's an F sharp, and that's a B natural, that's a D, da 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 da, he'd name them. And they're all over the piano. And Art would say, get me another beer. So he'd get about four beers in him, and he'd say, all right, take me up there. And this always knocked me out because he had him a beer, he'd take a drink and he'd tap it, and he knew what key it was in. And he know how much beer he had left. But now with all the keys going down, when I played a run, he went with this hand and pulled the keys up. So as he was going down with this hand, all the keys are back ready to play again with this hand. So when he come up, the keys were in shape. Then he's down here pulling the keys up with this hand. Well, this just shocked everybody because, you know, to remember five keys and to have them up so you could hit them again. Uh, you know, uh, you have to be pretty pretty alert, pretty sharp. And Art was that. He had a phenomenal mind for sports. He could quote you uh, batting averages of uh, players you never even heard of. He had a phenomenal memory for things like that. He was very interested in sports, all sports. He loved baseball, you know, hockey, uh, basketball. He knew all the statistics. He knew all the players, you know. He was really quite a, quite a person. I played cards with him. He liked to play pinochle. And, and we would sit down in between sets at night in the intermission. He said uh, he would put a very strong light behind his uh, his his, his uh, left side. And, and he would, this is the eye, I guess he could see better out of the left one. And, he, and we would deal the cards, and he would take the cards and put them up to his eye and put them all in place. And just where the cards were, were supposed to be. And then he never looked at it again. You had to call your card when you played it. You say, Jack of Spades, you know. And he'd reach and put the queen on it if he had the queen. But it was amazing. Every night, that's where we had our pastime in 1935. So I really got to know him and, and had a lot of fun with him. Really a musician's musician in every way. Caused many pianists to reconsider played rarely with others, had a tendency to, to sort of slow down and simplify his style when he played with other musicians. It was somewhat inhibiting. But he did form a trio in 1943 with Slam Stewart and Tiny Grimes, and uh, that started in, in Los Angeles where they used to jam after hours at, a, at an upstairs club for free. And then lines began to form people coming to hear them. They had to get chains and put them out in front of the restaurant. And uh, eventually they decided to do a tour with the trio and they again had a, a tremendous impact.
in those days, there weren't very many concert recital hall opportunities for a pianist who played jazz. And uh, the places that were available were small, dingy, dark, dank, often seedy, not very large. And it was really not possible to get the kind of exposure that one would get. But nevertheless, there were uh, opportunities that did turn up. Rudy Valley, an old-time singer who was a, also a saxophone player, uh, had Tatum on his show in 1934, I believe. And he did appear on the Kraft Music Hall uh, radio program and on a number of other radio programs. I understand that art is quite a favorite with some of the biggest concert pianists, too. You better take that kind of easy. I'm not a concert pianist. I mean, uh, I'm not accept that. Come on, Art. Okay, okay. Why don't you tell the folks something about the piano you have at home? I understand it's a pretty important item in the Tatum household, isn't it? Yes, I have a good Steinway. I've had it for about nine years since I've had my house. And that, incidentally, was the first thing to come in the house was a piano. <laughs> well, that was certainly a wonderful write-up you had in Time magazine a couple of months ago, Art. Let's see now, uh, how long have you been playing piano? Well, you're going to make me tell my age. I've been <laughs> playing quite a while. I'll say over 20 years anyway. The Dorsey Brothers were friends of his, and he did appear in the Dorsey Brothers film in the 40s called The Fabulous Dorseys. The band included the Dorsey Brothers, Charlie Barnett, uh, Ziggy Elman, and some others of note. basically an embellisher and an improviser on music of other people. And the music that he used was uh, popular songs of the day or previous days, and occasionally uh, classical themes too, which he must have come in contact with when he was a uh, child and was studying. He had, a, uh, he had a classical upbringing, and I think it's clear that a lot of that came through in his playing. Striding classical, and then uh, he had that ability that other pianists just didn't have. The mind. He could do things very quickly with his mind and his brain. And he could improvise, and he could 
do things that they, they just couldn't do. No way they could do it. Because they weren't him. You know what I mean? They just weren't Art Tatum. And that's, that's the way the cookie goes. They weren't him. That's when you'd catch Art at his best. When Art would sit there with only three or four people in the club and sing. And he sang great. And he loved to sing blues. Early in the morning. And I might say that Art was a very lovable, gentle guy. Tell you, baby, make the highlights on your head. Got something to tell you, baby. Make the highlights on your head. So I got something to give you, sugar. Make the spring scar on your bed. I took my brother to hear him one night in Chicago. It was at the Brass Rail. And I said, you're going to hear the greatest piano player in the world. And my brother is sitting there with his wife and Mary and I, and we're sitting there, and Tatum comes up and he goes, wham, and the people applaud. So my brother turned around to look and see who came in. And I said, what are you looking for, Ralph? And he says, somebody must have come in. And I heard them all applauding. And I says, no, they were applauding at what Art played on the piano. And my brother says, well, what I heard him play on the piano is like when you, when your mother made you dust the keys on the piano with a rag. Uh, that stuck with me all my life. There isn't much difference between just taking your finger and running them all down the black keys and you got one hell of a run, okay? And there it is, it's just a gliss down the piano. But it sounds to a layman, a layman doesn't know if this is hard to do or easy to do. And consequently, this is one of the drawbacks that a great person is going to have, that the more talented he is, the thinner the air gets. When you have that ability 
it's very hard to restrict yourself to play something as stupid as the melody. <laughs> if you want to be rich and you want to please a lot of people, you have to give the people what they can understand, what they can digest. And, of course, that means that you have to play uh, uh, a simple kind of music. But tell you, baby... He died in 1956 of uh, uremic poisoning, kidney failure. He had been ill for perhaps a year prior to that time. But he played right up until a couple of weeks before his death. And then he had to give up the tour and go back to California, where he lived, entered the hospital. He died almost immediately thereafter. Anyone that uh, thinks a musician has it easy. Uh, they're just kidding themselves. It's kind of hectic. It's kind of hectic because uh, you're, you're, you're doing a Tuesday to, say, Saturday or Sunday uh, booking. Then you got to leave out of there and go to the next booking. And you're riding planes. And basically, that's your mode of transportation, the planes. you got to go in the bad weather and the good weather. Uh, he would stay out practically all night. Uh, that's just part of him. The funeral itself brought out a whole host of uh, musicians involved in jazz. People like uh, Sarah Vaughan and, and Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, ben Webster was there and uh, many other notables in the world of jazz. I'm gonna sing this When I hear something that I think is wonderful, I want to compare it to something. I take out my RTM records and play it. If I think something is really new and rare and unusual, a player, not only a pianist, but any instrumentalist. And I say, well, let me just go back because we haven't heard art in a long, long time now. He's been gone. So the sound is not immediately in our ear. And when we hear something new, we say, well, I just want to check, check the balances on it. It brings me back to what it's like. Ben Wilson did the same thing. He was a great, great uh, worshiper of Art Taylor. He was a leader. Harmonically, these things that people are saying, he played too many notes. Uh, all these things harmonically is what everybody else has been striving to do. They just haven't been able to, to, to work it out like, like Art did. like his hands were moving. And he was playing notes that, and hum, harmonic structure, the balance in the harmonic way and the softness and the touch that he had. Just, just mind-boggling. <laughs> really, I, really, I've sat down with Ben Webster and listened to our tables recordings and we've cried. Just the two men sitting there listening to the beauty and the, the power and the, the fleetness of this man. isn't a piano player probably in the whole world that doesn't have his picture on the wall and say, I wonder how he did that. 
And I sat there and watched him. And I'm looking at those hands go down, and no matter how much, and I can take a piano roll, slow it down, and watch the keys go down real slow. And then you still can't figure out how he did it. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Greetings. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, this is uh, the early morning hours of Monday, uh, September the 5th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, this weekend in the city of Detroit, uh, we've been uh, covering the Detroit uh, Jazz Festival, uh, where Chuko Valdez uh, is the artist in residence, along with Diane Reeves, uh, who is from Detroit. Uh, Chuko Valdez, of course, uh, from Cuba. And um, we also, uh, last evening, were entertained uh, by Abdullah Ibrahim, uh, formerly known as Dollar Brand. And uh, in our previous program, we heard an extensive uh, interview uh, with uh, Dollar Brand, uh, Abdullah Ibrahim, and, of course, um, other um, musicians, uh, of course, that have been playing uh, the Alan Bernard uh, Quintet, uh, Harriet Tubman, and uh, many others uh, have been uh, performing uh, this weekend, uh, which will be Labor Day weekend in the United States. And uh, we're here uh, at the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast, and uh, we're going to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And these are some of the headlines uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Last week, the Ethiopian uh, Ministry of Mines announced that Ethiopia has discovered a 7 trillion cubic feet natural gas and oil reserve deposits in the Ogaden area of the Somalia regional state uh, in uh, Ethiopia. The amount of the natural gas and oil was found in three sites and certified after a deep study uh, during the past uh, five months. The Ministry of Mines has already received the first gas reserve certificate after a five-month-long study, uh, which uh, verified the extent of oil and natural gas reserves in Ethiopia and how it is going to be extracted. American-based company, the Netherlands Stoll Associates Incorporated, NSAI, spent five months uh, conducting the regional geological and mining data. The survey document conducted uh, by the company revealed that the presence of Ethiopia 
that it has 7 trillion cubic feet of natural gas and oil in the Argentine Basin of the Somalia regional state. And uh, the certificate was handed over to Minister Takele Uma uh, by Vice President and Team Leader of the NSAI company, Joseph M. Wolf. Uh, it was clear that Ethiopia has a huge potential uh, for natural gas resources development. Uh, this was realized decades ago. What is new uh, for the current development is that uh, Ethiopia already knows the volume and a specific site of the natural gas and already certified it with an international company after researching it. The report of the study indicated that the volume of Ethiopia's natural gas resource is some 7 trillion cubic feet found within three fields in the Ogaden Basin of Kalub, Hilala, and Dohar. And in other uh, news, uh, the United Nations envoy to the Western Sahara uh, met uh, on Saturday with representatives of the Polisario Front. Uh, this took place in Algeria. The Algerian-supported uh, Polisario Front uh, wants an independent state in the Western Sahara region, uh, which, uh, of course, is rich in minerals, which Morocco claims is part of its own territory, that is, the Kingdom of Morocco. Stefan de Mastura uh, met uh, with the Polisario Front main negotiator and the movement's permanent representative at the United Nations. We are committed to just and continuous peace, a complete commitment uh, which we have proven uh, during the past PACs. We have at the same time a strong will to continue to defend our non-negotiable rights with all legitimate means, said Sidi Mohammed Omar, the representative of the Polisario Front at uh, the United Nations. The Italian-Swedish diplomat also visited a refugee camp and spoke to a group of Sarawi youth and women. He carried a message uh, from the Sarawi women in the occupied territories who asked the representatives to come and visit to see the reality of their situation, uh, said Shaba Sini, the general secretary of the Women's Union. The meeting took place in Tindouf, uh, where the Polisario Front is based in far southwestern Algeria, near the borders with Morocco and uh, Western Sahara. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, Mali's uh, military leader and the leader of Burkina Faso's military regime met on Saturday in the Malian capital of Bamako to discuss bilateral cooperation. Uh, Colonel Asimi Guaita welcomed visited Burkinabi leader Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henri Sariogo da Mimba. The visit coincided uh, with the release of three Ivorian female soldiers, part of a group of 49 Ivorian military uh, personnel detained in Mali since July. And uh, finally, uh, in the Horn of Africa state of uh, Somalia, Somalian state media and residents say that extremist group uh, Al-Shabaab killed at least 20 people and burned seven vehicles transporting food in the Huron region on Saturday morning. And the government's drought envoy called it, quote, devastating, unquote, for communities in the grip of a severe drought. Residents said the attack uh, was in retaliation 
for a local mobilization against the Al-Qaeda-affiliated group that holds significant parts of uh, the central and southern Somalia. The extremist group's uh, presence complicates an already challenging response to the drought that has killed thousands of people. Some areas are on the brink of famine. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Journal, this uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And by logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, uh, not only can you have access to uh, today's program uh, for Sunday and the early morning hours of Monday, September 4th and September 5th of 2022, but well over 1,100 other archived editions uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Uh, and, of course, uh, right now we like to uh, take a break uh, with the uh, music uh, of Adelaide Hall uh, with Eunice Wilson, the Nicholas Brothers, and the Five Racketeers. And, of course, Adelaide Hall... Um, had also uh, collaborated with uh, Art Tatum. He had played uh, with her group, and, um, of course, later uh, he went out, of course, on his own and, uh, of course, uh, became a legendary contributor uh, to uh, the situation involving uh, jazz music and popular music as a whole. Let's listen to Adelaide Hall. give you anything but love, baby, while that's the only thing I've plenty of, baby, dream a while and scheme a while, you're sure to find. Looking so well, 
Reflections on uh, Art Tatum, the legendary uh, jazz pianist, and of course, this weekend at the Detroit Jazz Festival, uh, two legendary pianists, uh, Abdullah Ibrahim from the Republic of South Africa and Chuckle Valdez uh, from uh, the Republic of Cuba, are highlighted uh, artists uh, during uh, the course of this weekend. And uh, here at the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast, uh, we have been covering uh, the Detroit uh, Jazz Festival uh, all weekend, and it's going to conclude uh, later today, and uh, there will be a another uh, collaboration between uh, Diane Reeves of Detroit and Chico Valdez of uh, the Republic of Cuba. And uh, we're going to listen uh, to uh, the interview uh, with Adelaide Hall uh, again, uh, discussing Art Tatum and other artists doing uh, the 1920s and 1930s. And of course, uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, you've been away a long, long time from performing in New York. And you were a star here 50 years ago, and it was a big thing in your life. What does it mean to you coming back? Well, it all seems a dream, really. I, I, I can't believe that it's been, uh, dear, what, 50-some-odd years? 20-some-odd, 1928, with Blackbirds. And then before that, a few beautiful musicals before that, Shuffle Along and... Chocolate Kitties and, oh, my dear. 
and I'm uh, now it's as though I'm just floating on air. I'm so happy to be back as a Brooklyn girl. I'm British by marriage, which you know, and I've been I've been in London since 1938. I just arrived in in London. I arrived in London uh, just before the war. After staying four years in uh, Paris, three months at the Moulin Rouge with the Blackbirds. I can't tell you what it means to be back here again. Of course, you know I was here last year. And now here again. Well, I just can't believe it. And the audience has been so delightful. I'm very thankful for everything, really. Now, um, since I've been home this time, I feel as though I've missed an awful lot. And... uh, when I get home again, get back to London, I'm going to think the whole situation over. I may come back. <laughs> Never know. I may come back. When you um, left Blackbirds in 1952, and in 28, 52 years ago, yeah. uh, the star of the show was a guy named Bill Robinson. Tell us. Uh, With Bill Robinson, the 1928 Blackbirds. I sang uh, I Can't Give You Anything But Love. Baby, must have that man, and digga digga do. There were my uh, outstanding numbers then, and uh, uh, what else did I sing in that number? Did I sing? Let me see. No, they were the four numbers that I had then. Well, what can I say about it? That I just loved the review. I had the opportunity opportunity to dance with Bill, Bill Robertson. And I think it was Peg Lake Bates in that review. I can't remember. Peg Lake Bates and the... Oh. Well, he was all right, really. Bill had a temper. But uh, to know the man, you know, he wasn't too bad, really. <laughs> he had a very bad temper, but... Uh, he was always very kind to me, you know. He was all right, really. And I shall never forget our opening in uh, London at the Moulin Rouge. Mm, we had a wonderful time. I don't know what to say about it, but it was all so very beautiful. And we stayed on Broadway at the... What theatre was it? Uh, what was the number? What was the name of the theatre now? I can't remember. You know, I'm terrible for dates and names. I'm more concerned with impressions of your feelings. I don't care about the facts. No, the no. facts are not important. No. Why don't you talk about it? It's your feelings about certain things. In other words, what did you feel, for instance, when you went to London and you made up your mind to stay there? Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you want What was your impression of London as opposed to coming from America? Oh. Well... You see, after I arrived in America in 1938, I was very, in in London rather, I was very, I was one of the fortunate ones to have have the BBC to call me, to start me off with with a lot of radio work. That was the first thing. And that all happened because I happened to go into uh, a club where uh, Joe Loss was playing, rehearsing, and uh, he introduced me over there. And the following morning, I had a contract for the BBC. And I was doing so very well on BBC that I thought, well, I must stay here for a while. 
And then I went on and on. And a year after, I had a long contract for uh, various theaters there. And I went from one theater to the other. And then we opened a place called the Florida Club, where uh, all the, it was a sort of a, an invitation club. I mean, uh, in uh, Bruton News, and I had the uh, opportunity of meeting all the lovely, outstanding people there. And from one thing to another, I found myself staying there. There wasn't any... Yeah. I'm awfully warm yeah, today. Very hot. Thank you very much. Mmm. No. Mmm. Thank you very much. There wasn't... Uh, your decision to stay in, in England had had no racial concern. In other words, it wasn't your concern about coming home. Uh, you would be there was a freer life in, in England than it was in America. Was that in your thinking at all? Oh no, no, nothing, nothing racial. No, nothing racially. No, 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 nothing like that at all. My husband was British. I met him here, and he wanted. He felt that uh, he wanted to go back to uh, to London, and of course, I followed my husband, and. I stayed on there, and that was that. There was no particular reason at all. I missed my home, America, very much. But after you stay a place two or three years, you know, you become accustomed. And uh, I do like London very much. I like it because it's quiet. And I like the quiet life. I'm sort of an old-fashioned girl, I guess. The Ellington situation, you, you built such an international reputation. Thank you. I'll wait. Thank you. You built such an international reputation uh, with Creole Love Corps. Oh, yes. Tell us a story about that Oh, well, we were on the circuit on the art show. When I first sang Creole Love Corps. When I first sang Creole Love Corps. We were on the art circuit, and uh, Duke. Was play was opening the 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 second half. I closed the first half, and uh, I came downstairs to listen to uh, Duke's performance. And of course, when he came to this lovely melody of Creole Love Call, I started humming in the wings, just a sort of a counter melody. And uh, Duke came over to the side, to my side, and uh, he was uh, still directing the orchestra. And he said, that lady said, hum that just one more time, he said. Because he thinks, he says, I think we're going to record that tomorrow. I said, you can't record it because I don't know what I was doing. I said, so you can't. He said, oh yes, wait. So he started again. And I started this sort of counter melody. And he said, that's just what I wanted. He says, we're going to record that tomorrow morning. And that's how it was born. As simple as that. Just before that, because it was it was a time that I was traveling with two pianists. I always had two pianists, you see. And of course, yeah. Oh yes, it was a time that uh, at this particular time when I was on RKO circuit, I always traveled with two pianos, as you see. And uh, I was fortunate enough to find my husband found Art Tatum playing in Cleveland in a small cabaret somewhere, and he went over after him and asked him if he wanted to travel with his wife. And he said, well, I've never had that to do. He said, but I'd like the idea. 
He said, so he came over. So I had Art Tatum with me. So I introduced, we introduced Art Tatum. He had never been out of Cleveland before. And they just loved him. And he stayed with me about a month and a half. And then someone offered him many more dollars. What <laughs> were you paying him? <laughs> I can't remember. It wasn't so much considering, you know, what they pay today. But uh, he was a beautiful accompanist. Beautiful accompanist. And I was sorry to, leave, to, to lose him. Then I had a Joe Turner and Francis Carter at another time. Joe Turner works in Paris now? Yes, that's right. He's still there. Or Switzerland, I think. Mm. Okay. Yeah. All right. New York in the 1920s. It was a city teeming with life. Some had lived here for generations, but there were many newcomers, recent immigrants from the rural south and the islands of the Caribbean. For some, New York was America's first city, and that uptown community called Harlem was the heart of black America. People who came to New York carried with them their hopes, their fears, their anger. It was the period they called the Jazz Age. The Harlem Renaissance, with its literature, graphic arts, theater, and vaudeville, was alive and well. But the liveliest form of cultural expression emerged in the music called jazz. Jazz had the unique capacity for voicing the joys and expectations and reflecting the pride and the pain of the black experience in America. And more than any other city, New York in the 1920s was the citadel of jazz. So it was only natural that many ambitious young black musicians Edward Kennedy Ellington among them, would take up the challenge of the big city. The music scene in New York was very strongly dominated by the piano players, great piano players, James P. Johnson, Willie the Lion Smith. Count Basie was one of the great piano players. There were millions of them, all great. And uh, a little terrifying, but I'm lucky. Everybody liked me, and uh, so I had no problems. And you took part in piano battles, I understand. Oh, yes, of course. Sure. I did that before I left Washington. But when I got to New York and I took the slicker way out, I would be the one to start them. I could be in Mexico's one night, and I would sit down, and first of all, buy everybody a drink and sit down and play something and then say, Pats, play this phone. Uh, Pats would pick up there and then Pats would get there and then he'd say, hey, James. And then James would come over. And then this would irritate the lion and the lion would stand up and say, get up, I'll show you how it's supposed to go. And then it would, uh, something really happened then. I played 10 different courses without stopping. So Duke, sit down. I'll get back to my story. I won't let you off. I'll, I'll, I'll stay on that one subject. So anyhow, they had a publishing place in New York then by the name of Irvin Mills, who you know recently was associated with Duke, you boy. Mills, Irvin uh, and, and his brother and all the sons and daughters, make the long story short, they wanted a band leader, and they had the Blue Rhythm Band, all types of bands. Lucky Melinda, you name them, and they had them. Took one look at the guy and I talked to the man one day. I said, look, I said, there's a young chap in here, handsome guy, tall. I said, above all, he can, he can improvise and memorize. 
So to put Duke in front of the band, I don't have to tell you what happened ever since. And now we come to one who seems to be set entirely apart from all other composers and musicians. When I first heard him, he was conducting a little five-piece orchestra up in Harlem. Today, he is acclaimed by music authorities both here and abroad as the creator of a new vogue in music, Duke Ellington. But Ellington was a very shrewd businessman. He had um, a great apprenticeship with a man by the name of Irving Mills, who was probably one of the shrewdest businessmen in music publishing business that ever existed. Uh, he uh, built an empire, and of course, and they became partners in a thing called Mills Ellington Publishing Firm. Irving Mills encouraged Ellington to record his own compositions and arrangements. According to Ellington, his success in breaking down racial barriers in the recording and entertainment industries came as a result of his association with Mills. And it was Mills who was responsible for getting the Duke Ellington Orchestra its engagement at the Cotton Club. name itself was a reflection of the exotic stereotypes that white society had created during the 1920s about black people. Situated in the heart of Harlem, the club featured the music and performances of black artists. But the Cotton Club had a policy of whites only. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our famous Cotton Club. And if you can spare a minute, Muir Mary Macon, I'd like to have the pleasure of introducing the greatest living master of jungle music. The rip-roaring harmony hound, none other than Duke Ellington. Thank you, bow, Dukey. As band leader, Ellington had to design many of his musical arrangements to back the Cotton Club production numbers. Nevertheless, Ellington was able to generate a unique style for big band orchestration and compositions, which would profoundly influence the future of jazz. introduced such timeless compositions as East St. Louis Toodaloo, The Mooch, Mood Indigo, Black and Tan Fantasy, and the first wordless jazz vocal, Creole Love Call. playing all these beautiful tunes. Well, when it came to Creole Love Call, the melody, I said, oh, it's so beautiful, isn't it? Lovely. And I started humming, you see, this counter melody. And uh, he said, oh, Addy, he said, that's what I've been looking for. He says, that's just what I want for this number. I said, what? He says, what you've been doing there? What you've been humming? I said, oh, I said, I've been doing that sort of live, but I don't know how to. I wouldn't know how to go over that again. He said, but yes, you could do it. He says, try it. He says, I'll start again from the beginning, the chorus, and see if you can do it. I said, well, I'll try. And with that, he went out and stood in front of the orchestra and started again. And I started this humming. And at the end of the chorus, he came over and said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to record that in a few days. 
I said, I don't see how we can do this. It's because I don't know what I was doing. He said, leave it to me. And that's how it started. Two things were happening at that time. First of all, it uh, was at the uh, real uh, launching, not the launching, but when it was really catching, when radio was first catching on. And we had a transcontinental wire of the Cotton Club. We were broadcasting almost every night across the country. From the Cotton Club. That's the thing that made everything, uh, well, made people stop and think. Now, we're downtown, you know, we're downtown where they, we have the most beautiful clubs, nightclubs and excitement. What is all of this doing? What is this going, what is this going on at the Cotton Club up in Harlem? And at the same time, uh, all the other big bands in the world were imitating Paul Whiteman and playing big grandiose fanfares and all that sort of thing. And we had a very plaintive style and it sort of broke through. And I think the Cotton Club really helped the, the profession and started people, you know, understanding that there was plenty of talent in Harlem. And I think that was the beginning of, uh, of everything. I think the Cotton Club and Duke, I think that began, that started everything going in Harlem. The Great Depression of the 1930s was a period of hard times for America. Yet in spite of meager hopes and massive unemployment, people seemed determined to survive, and to survive with dignity. More than ever, people had a need for entertainment and music in their lives. The elegant image of Duke Ellington epitomized the pride and sense of style of a generation, and his poignant, vibrant music gave voice to their dreams. In 1930 marked the year Ellington and his orchestra went to Hollywood to appear. Welcome back. And uh, that uh, was a uh, audio file on uh, the history of Duke Ellington, uh, his broadcast uh, over radio, and of course his tenure at the Cotton Club uh, during the 1920s. And of course, um, the collaboration with Adelaide Hall, uh, and, of course, uh, her collaboration with Art Tatum. So we're just connecting uh, the dots here at the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. I'm your host, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, this weekend we've been uh, covering the Detroit Jazz Festival, which has uh, featured uh, two legendary uh, pianists. Abdullah Ibrahim from the Republic of South Africa and uh, Choco Valdez uh, from the Republic of Cuba. And Abdullah Ibrahim uh, played a concert on Saturday evening and uh, 
opening up the uh, festival on Friday evening, uh, Choco Valdez uh, played a wonderful set. Uh, he also played again uh, on Sunday evening uh, and, of course, did a uh, performance of the set uh partly uh, with Diane Reeves of Detroit. Uh, they're going to close out the festival later on today, uh, Choco Valdez and Diane Reeves. And uh, right now I want to listen to some more music. This is from Evelyn Prayer, uh, tune entitled, It Takes a Good Woman to Keep a Good Man at Home. Let's listen in to Evelyn Prayer. Come see you. 
Compositions uh, from Evelyn Prier, uh, popularly known as uh, probably the first um, African American woman movie star, actress, uh, appeared in early uh, African American films, uh, Oscar Micheaux, as well as others. And of course, as well as a jazz singer to boot. And uh, right now we want to move into another uh, major contributor and pianist, uh, that is Hayda Brooks, uh, who made uh, her uh, debut uh, during uh, the 1940s uh, with the Boogie Woogie piano. And then we'll hear an interview uh, with Hayda Brooks uh, many, many years later. But this one is called Hayda Brooks' Jukebox Boogie. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Growing up here in Hollywood as a child actor, uh, I'll never forget the times at Falcon's Dancing School on Western Avenue where I used to go dance, take dancing lessons <laughs> and singing and all that. It was so much fun. And I used to, there was a club around on Western Avenue, a blues club. I can't remember the name of it, but I used to get my ear in there and I used to hear these singers rehearse, blues singers and jazz singers. And, oh, I was, that's the first time I ever heard blues when I was like nine years old. And boy, did I love it. It always stuck with me. That's my favorite blues, rhythm, jazz. And today I am sitting here with a great lady of jazz and rhythm and blues. And <laughs> Hannah Brooks, how are you? I'm fine, Boy, Skippy. How are you? days in Hollywood. You grew up here, too. In yes, Hollywood. I did. Oh, those were the days. Oh, Tell yes. me about Los Angeles in those days. Well, about every time I'd leave town, come back, it would change. Another building would go up. Uh-huh. And I've seen it grow. You have? I've seen it grow. You were up at Brooks. Went to school where, first of all? First, uh, the elementary school was Malabar. Uh-huh. Lived right next door. Uh-huh. Couldn't afford to be late. Uh-huh. Then I was supposed to go to Roosevelt High, but I had a special permission to go to Polytechnic for its musical curricula. Uh-huh. And then I uh, went to... Um, I never knew, but you had a broke, but you never knew you wanted to get into show business at that time. No, I didn't, didn't have a clue. Didn't know. I didn't have a clue. What, were, what was Hannah Brooks aiming for at that time? Don't I don't really know. Really? I didn't really know. I um, hadn't any possible idea that I was going to end up in show, show business mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or using the education that I got. My father gave me in music uh -huh. to use it to what use has been put to today. Right. You were... Playing piano for dancers, tap dancers. That's and, right. Uh, recitals and all that. Well, I was playing for one uh, school, rehearsals? Covan School. No, not rehearsals. Okay. Just uh, uh, it's almost an everyday thing, but Sunday. Uh huh. For children, small children, and some adults and some movie stars. Uh huh. And uh, this uh, man who taught the dancing taught all the big dancers. Uh huh. In fact, they had a dance convention. Uh huh. And each one of them gave uh, a routine, and right. this man's name was Willie Covan, and every step that he did wasn't tap. It was tap, and to a certain extent, you could hear his movements, uh -huh. but you could also see at everything that he did was a picture. Mm -hmm. And he's always told me, he says, if you stand still, the audience can talk, go to sleep, and wake up, and they'll still see you there. <laughs> but if you move around, they think they might have missed something, uh -huh. and they keep looking at you. Hey, Brooks, you look wonderful. I feel fine. You're keeping self busy. Uh, yes. But after this rehearsals and recitals and stuff like that you've been doing, what happened? How did you get into business as a singer, pianist? Well, as a as a uh, as a pianist, I mean, I was uh, trying to get some uh, different rhythms from the poet and peasant for this dance director. Okay. And uh, I was trying, I got the rumba, and I got uh, rhythm, and I got a waltz, and then I was trying for a boogie. Uh-huh. And someone was standing behind me at this music company downtown <coughs> while I was trying to pick out the boogie and keep it within the classical vein. Right. And they asked me, could I play a boogie? And I said, I don't know. Uh -huh. He says, well, I'll give you a week, he says, to work one up. Uh -huh. I've got $800 
and we'll record it. If something comes of it, we're in business. If nothing comes of it, I've lost eight hundred dollars. What was that boogie woogie song? <laughs> it's the swinging, well, swinging the boogie. Swinging the boogie. <laughs> that's the first recording. That's the first recording. Ah, and that's the first time it came out. It became a big hit. It became a big hit. My sister took it to San Francisco, a box, uh-huh. and she took it to Sherman and Clay, which played nothing and had nothing in their store but classical records. Uh huh. And they bought it. Did they really? Yeah. Boogie Woogie wasn't around those days, was it? Well, I no, it hadn't been. Uh, it didn't come forth as much as I think uh, it should have. But then I wasn't very much familiar with it. But I mean, uh-huh. there were some great Boogie Woogie uh-huh. piano players. Right. I mean, you know, like uh, um, Albert Ammons and oh, Pete okay. Johnson, okay. you know, and Mead Lux Lewis, uh-huh. who was kind of heavy on the hands. Uh-huh. <laughs> but so I went behind uh, um, Albert Ammons and uh-huh. Pete Johnson. But you made another uh, Boogie Woogie song. What was that? The Blues and the Boogie? Blues and the Boogie. Blue- well, no, I, I, that was an, a, a saxophone solo. Yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of put out. Uh-huh. There's a guy playing the blues on a saxophone, don't even like saxophone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm playing the piano. Right, right. Uh-huh. But that was on the other side or the flip side of swinging the Boogie. So this Tell man, me the days at the Million Dollar Theater downtown in L.A. That must have been great those days. It was wonderful. Great stars must have been down there. All they were great. great entertainers. You must have seen a lot of great ones. I did. Oh, I, and I, was, I was back there. Uh, uh, I got the engagement when I was uh, backstage with Lionel Hampton. Mm. And Lionel Hampton, uh, I don't know. He knew. Yes, he had heard that uh-huh. I was... Uh, coming out on boogies, the boogies that I was making was going very well, mm-hmm. and he just by sheer mistake or sheer nerve called me out on the stage, and I didn't know he was going to do that. He called you. He called me. Uh, you were backstage. Yes, standing uh-huh. almost on stage uh-huh. behind the curtain. You right, know. right. And uh, I I went to the piano and played a boogie. Uh-huh. The band fell in behind me, uh-huh. and from that I had a two week in, a one week engagement with Charlie Burnett. Ooh, that yeah. must have been great. It was fine. The movie. You grew up here in Hollywood. Did you ever thought that you would be in a film? No. Hannah Brooks never knew you wanted to be in show business. Here you are now in one of the great movies with mm-hmm. Lana Turner, Kurt Douglas, The Bad and the Beautiful. Bad and the Beautiful. Oh, what Denny a movie. Denny Goodman su- uh, uh, uh. suggested me first with Out of the Blue with George Brenton on Dvorak. Uh-huh. And uh, that was an English production. After that, it was with the wonderful Humphrey Bogart. The uh, other one was called... Uh, which one? Which, with Humphrey Bogart. That it was, was called uh, In a Lonely Place. In a Lonely Place. In a Lonely Place. Who was in that? Humphrey and who else? Humphrey and... Um, well, Nicholas Ray directed it. Yes. And Gloria Graham. Great actress. And, Fra- right. and, and uh, Frank uh, Lovejoy mm-hmm. was in it. Uh-huh. And... Um, but I couldn't hardly get to to know any of those people because you didn't get to know Humphrey Bogart. Oh, Humphrey Bogart would let me alone. I mean, <laughs> what do you mean? Just the, let, had a Brooks alone, right? Yeah, well, he said when the director said cut, Humphrey would make it over to where we were. We'd talk, we'd uh-huh. talk, we'd talk, and we'd talk. Uh-huh. What do you talked about, Hannah? Share something. Well, what do you said? Uh, Humphrey would tell me about the, his houseboy. His houseboy. Yeah, who was in motion pictures also. Okay. His name was Fred Clark, uh-huh. and. Uh, Fred Clark, the... Yeah, well, Fred Clark... Uh, the bald-headed guy, Fred Clark, the actor, character actor, wasn't that the one? I don't, I don't okay, know. Okay, go ahead. He, um... Uh, <laughs> Humphrey Bogart invited me over for breakfast. 
Don't right. know where baby was. Uh-huh. And uh, we were sitting in the kitchen waiting for Clark to come out and fix our breakfast, and he came out, and he had an English accent. And he says, I'm very sorry, Master, but I can't fix your breakfast this morning. I'm due on the set at 6. The Fred Clark did? Yes, right. That's the wrong Fred Clark. That's right. Okay, go no, ahead. No, he, he was... Uh, okay. He was, uh, what I might say, a mixture. He was black, uh, oh, but okay. he had, uh, I guess he was had an English yeah, accent because uh, he was born over there. Right, I guess. of course. Uh -huh. And then he would tell me that uh, Fred Clark uh, uh, ruined his car. Ran, uh, he ran into a wall to keep from hitting a dog. Uh -huh. And uh, it was so much about uh, Fred Clark, I think he just adored the man. He liked him very much. He was very, very, very uh, up on him, you know. Lana Turner, working with Kurt Douglas, Lana Turner, The Bad and the Beautiful. That became a great big movie. It was a big movie. A beautiful. classic movie. Oh, the... <laughs> but your, your song in that film. My you? song in that film is There I Am and There I Went. What's that all about? How's that that was all about the, uh, because when I went to the audition, Vincent Minnelli directed it. Right, right. And uh, he uh, asked me to do Temptation. I didn't like Temptation. You don't like temptation? No, I told him during the audition, I said, I don't like temptation. Sounds like a strip number, doesn't it? To me, you know, you came, I was alone. <laughs> yeah, da, right. da, da. And then he said, well, what do you do? And I said, I, I do something like, uh, why was I born? And don't uh, take your love from me. Uh-huh. He said, well, do a little bit of it. And I did something. And then he put the music of temptation in front of me. Right. And I made out. He had two other girls there that put the top up and they played it very classically and mm -hmm. beautifully they played it so you had auditioned for this i auditioned for okay. it okay and so then i sang don't blame me and then he put the music of temptation up in front of me and i read it and i said da 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 i didn't want to play it uh -huh. but uh, he said okay he told me to go over and make out the requisite for my pay for the audition. And then when I was making out the requisite, he would come over and he told uh, my, uh, well, it was my uh, representative at the time. Uh -huh. He said, when is she available? <laughs> Great. <laughs> but when I got on the set, these two girls were there. And uh, I was late because they hadn't told me what they were going to do. I wasn't negotiating any kind of a contract. I didn't know exactly. Was this MGM? MGM? Was this at MGM or Universal? MGM. MGM. Okay. MGM. Yeah. And uh, I didn't. Uh, nobody talked to me about where to be, what to do, and this and that and the other. So I didn't show. Mm -hmm. So he sent another representative. I was working at Jimmy Dolan's. At Jimmy the time, Dolan. which is now, what is it, Spago's? Or Spago's, yeah, right. Which uh, is on, now, uh, yeah. On Sunset. Mm. That was a beautiful place. And uh, that was a hot spot those days. It was. We'll get back it to was, it. Go yeah. ahead. Okay. <laughs> and uh, they sent another representative to me. He said, be on set tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Uh-huh. And I looked at him, and I said, how much are they going to pay me? <laughs> <laughs> he told me. Uh-huh. I said, okay, I'll be there. I came in. And Mrs. Manelli says, I have gone through hell to try to find you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, uh, I think he got just a little bit of revenge. Mm -hmm. He made me stay while everybody went to lunch. He had a, a man come out to teach me temptation. To teach Hatta Brooks temptation. temptation. I love it. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs>
And I, I went behind the man and I uh, did the, the rhythm that he had put it in. Uh-huh. And by the time I had finished, it was uh, here I am and there I went. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. I didn't sing that much of it. In the in the Humphrey Bogart picture, I sang the whole. You thing. sang the whole thing oh, with Humphrey yeah. Bogart. Yeah. Humphrey Bogart loves those singers at the piano, didn't he? All his movies, a lot of his films had that. That he had the slam and all that, and all. <laughs> all that, and had a Brooks in one of them too, baby. Right. Had a Brooks. Tell me about this club you were t- by Spargo's. That the what was it called? Um, Jimmy Dolan. Jimmy Dolan's. Yeah. Tell me about that. Was a great. It was room. up on the hill. A lot of stars used to come there. A lot of stars came there. I understand Elizabeth Scott used to come all the time. She used to come all the time. Tell me about that. She brought me a bottle of perfume. Uh Uh-huh. And she she seemed to to like me very, very much. And uh, Bobby uh, Short was there at one time. And uh, also Bobby, um, uh, he married... uh, Bobby Darren? No, No, no. that's a long time. Bobby Darren's... Jack Webb's uh, former wife. Um... No, okay. The one that sang Cry Me a River, but anyway. Johnny Ray? Oh, oh Cry Me a River. Yeah. Oh. And, well, oh, Julie, Julie, uh, Julie London. Julie London. Julie yeah. London. And uh, Bobby, uh, his name was Bobby. He played with me, played for me. Right. To do two or three songs standing. Mm-hmm. And then he would get up and I would go to the piano. Uh-huh. Which made a nice little show and a nice little start. You know what I love about Hatter Brooks? You're at the piano, but all of a sudden... You're walking around, and there's no, you know. No piano. No piano. Yeah. Hatta Brooks, where did that come from? Come on, tell me about it. Uh, tell I, me the evening that, that <laughs> arrived in Hatta Brooks' life. <laughs> I, I want to know. I got missed. Uh-huh. And someone was talking. Go ahead. And I didn't think that they were paying enough attention, so I got right up and walked to them. I'm over here now. Right. Right there. Uh, uh-huh. Not over there. That's right. And I'm going to sing to you. I didn't say this. But my attitude showed it. You're going to listen. So from then on, it worked. I, it worked. It worked. I did a lot. I did it a lot. It, it works mm-hmm. because people in clubs are talking. They were. Yeah, because you're at the piano and sometimes that's a very clever idea. I did, and I do. You know, when I, I still do to, it. When I used to perform, Hatta, I still perform. But when I used to perform, I used to do the same thing. I run around the room and jump on tables and things <laughs> and get their attention. Very clever. I well, oh yes, yes. It works. It works. Yeah. Because as I said, but I was thinking of yeah. For is. you, because you got the piano uh-huh, there and you're uh, leaving that piano. Heaven, heavens to Betsy and heavens to good sakes that I kept the tune in my head right. and the tone. You know, so Difficult. that I could go back and hit the same key that I started out in and end up in that same key. Right, right. And uh, as I remembered, uh, like uh, Willie Coban says, move around and they'll follow you. That's right. But if you sit still, they'll go to sleep. How were the audience back those days in comparing today's audience? Uh, they were... You very, just said the word. Oh. <laughs> they were rude. Yeah, go ahead. They were very... Some, some of them were rude. Uh-huh. Very rude. But the clubs. They wanted, to, they wanted to be seen instead of listen, you know. Had a, the club scene those days back must have been great. It was. I, wasn't it great? It was. It was. I loved it. I loved the club scenes. Yes. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. I mean, I had a, a piano, and uh, they had put an extended top on it so that maybe 15 or 20 people could sit around. Right, right. And they were right in my face, yes, of, course, of course, naturally. Right. And uh, 
they start talking, and I said, well, I think I'll go to the bar. <laughs> and do just exactly what you're doing. That's right. Have a drink, and when I finish, I'll come back. Now, you can talk all you want to while I'm gone. That's a great gimmick. Great gimmick. So I would do that, and I'd come back. Uh, well, see, I mean, it was unbelievable to a certain extent. People have never seen this People before. didn't believe that, no. that anybody would get up and walk away Absolutely. and go to the bar and have a drink. Right. You know. Right. Absolutely. And uh, at that particular time when I got up and walked away, I might have needed one. <laughs> no, I went to Europe. It, it didn't happen that way. How about in Europe? Working in Europe. It, it didn't, doesn't it, happen that it way. It didn't happen that way. But you still walk around, though. I, I walked around, I walked yeah. around, except at the club in uh, Australia, it seated 800 people, it was so big, uh-huh. I was almost walking a block to get to the panel, right, you right, know, right, right. but everybody was just cut and quiet. You do the RSL clubs in Australia, Sydney and all Melbourne? I did Sydney. Yeah, I love it. And Melbourne. I did most of my clubs, my shows in Melbourne. Melbourne. That's the 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 sophisticated area. Yes, it's a quite, uh, well, I would say sedate and staid. It's Bostonian. Mm -hmm. Melbourne's considered Boston. Anyway, first black performer ever had her own television show, half-hour show. Had a Brooks sitting here. Tell me about it. I mean, even uh, Nat, uh, before Nat King Cole. Oh, yes. Nat before King. Nat King Cole, you were the first black performer ever had her television show. That must have been a great feeling to open the doors. It Tell was. Me. It was. I mean, uh, they called me uh, at this particular station to do uh, 11 to 11.30 show. What a time. Just to, I'm looking at a wall, Skippy. Right. Singing. That's not Hedda Brooks. No. You're looking. But they did it twice to me, you know. I mean, this uh-huh. is radio. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. At 11 to 11.30. Right. And then I think maybe they got a lot of calls about that. And uh, Don Patterson, who was producing my show, mm-hmm. came to me and asked me, did I want to do a television show? Right. This is for KTLA, Channel 13. That was the first. Yeah. It's now changed. But, I mean, yeah. I, I KTLA, yeah. Channel 13. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. And uh, I said, sure. And it was very successful. You did 26 weeks. That's right. Then you went on the road with your show. That's right. So people got to know how to Brooks from television. <laughs> That's right. But it was difficult for you just to camp, but you know, not really. It's like Barachi did it, too, you know. Yes. You're a performer, Hedda Brooks. You can do it. When you're working nightclubs, I believe when a performer works nightclubs, they can go do anything. Anything, they want, Anything they want. Why is that, do you think? Well, I mean, Why? like, uh, well, because we're so extroverted. <laughs> we're just, we're just out there. We, we like what we're doing, but then sometimes we, we hold ourselves back, but not long. Uh huh. But we want to get out. We want to do this. We like the people. Right. And we, we want them to like us. Of course. And so we go uh, sometimes out of our way. Right. Sort of, sort of puts you off edge, but I mean, you go out of your right, way. Right. Billy Burke, the club here in Hollywood. A lot of stars worked it. Frankie Lane, I can go, I mean, the Shecky, they all worked it. Yes. Billy Burke, tell me about that club in Hollywood. Slim and Slam, I Slim. used to go there. <laughs> yeah, tell me about that club. I used to go there, and uh, I hadn't really, when I used to go there, I hadn't really done any clubs. I think At that's that time, what fascinated yes, me. fascinated to watch. It really fascinated me. And you watched Frankie Lane I one night, Frankie and Lane. you saw, a, 
you heard a song. Yes. That's My, my desire. desire, which you recorded. That's right. And the big hit. I loved it. I went to a second-hand store right off of Kohanga and got the sheet music, and <coughs> it was 50 years old, that song. Before that, really? Yes. Okay, go ahead. It had one of those old-fashioned covers, you know. Uh-huh. Like the uh, the woman with the uh, cloche hat, uh-huh. the long cigarette holder, oh. and the fur, and the and the and the tight dress, cutting yeah. all hanging all the way down her ankles and whatnot, and it was fifty years old, and uh, I wanted to record it. Uh-huh. After um, Charlie heard? Barnett told me after I do after you do uh, three boogies <coughs> and you get an encore, what are you going to do? I sure. said I'm going to do another boogie. He said, Why don't you sing? Uh-huh. And I said I can't. He said, Well, fake it. And I did. But I did one tune before, That's My Desire, okay. for the audience, the next show. Right. And then the next recording that I did was That's My Desire. Of course, I knew, uh, I didn't ask Frank's uh, permission. permission. No. You didn't ask him. No. But he didn't record it then. He recorded it after. After I did it. Yes, that's what I mean. But you first recorded it. I recorded it, it first. First. But Frankie's... Why do you think that became such a hit with Frankie Lane? The gimmick, the simic? Well, I mean... It, 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 I it was a hit it, for you, too. It was but, a hit for me, but his voice had a lot to do with it, and his uh, his the rendition of it had a re- lot to yes, do with yes. it. Yes, yes. Because, you see, he did it almost every night in his show. Yes, I see. The audience. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I just fell for it. Anna Brooks, this is the song that you did record first. That's my desire. Right. This is it. Look at this. This is your first... Album, right? Uh, uh, vocally, uh, vocally, yes. yeah. uh-huh. And now you got a new one out. Anytime, any place, anywhere. anywhere. Ooh, that sounds like me, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, any place, <laughs> anywhere, girl. That's, I'll be uh, up. that's a C, uh, C. I love this, Hannah. This is Thank great. You. The songs are great. What's some of the songs in this? Well, now, you wait got, a minute. Wow, you've got any, any place, anytime, anywhere. That's my desire. You've got all those songs, aren't you? Uh, oh, God, you got them all here, girl. The Foggy Day. Yeah, Foggy love Day. Your, uh, I love your rendition Old of Old Man Day. River. Old Man, your rendition of Old Man River and Foggy Days is so good. It's so good. Thank you. I have a new one coming out. Yes, what is it? It's called Time Was When. Time Went... Time was when. Time was when. It'll be out oh, sometime like after, the, after the picture. But you know, Hannah Brooks, look at this. Deter Magazine, this month's magazine. Look at this. Look at you here. They give you two pages. Look how, I love this picture. This is a great picture. of this. Surprised me. That surprised me. The picture is fabulous. Hannah Brooks, the article. These young kids. You're in with all these rock stars in here. <laughs> Anna Brooks, how do you feel about this? I feel this is ninety. Brooks. This is 96, darling. That's right. Look at this, Hannah Brooks. And this is 50 years of 50 showbiz. 50 years of show business. Right. 50 years. Looking back, Hannah Brooks, had a good time? Had a ball. Had Why? more fun. I traveled in Europe with the Harlem Globetrotters. I had a ball, too, there. Did you really? Mm-hmm. Had loads of fun. I liked it. I semi-retired, though, and then came back. Yeah, you did. I remember. I was the first one interviewed you when I first came back from Vietnam. When I first came back in the uh, 70s, when I start doing my television show, I had Hedda Brooks on. That's right. 
Helen Eichler brought you to me, and, and you were just, you were retired. What happened, Heather? Tell me. I uh, become a sort of disillusioned with audiences, truthfully speaking. And as I said, well, at, what do you mean, just disillusioned with audiences? Well, I mean, I just, I just couldn't understand their talking. In the audience? In the audience. And uh, when I came back from Europe, after it was so, after I was so beautifully received, right. I couldn't understand why this, this so rude. country, why, why this, this was so rude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I just stopped. I just stopped. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts from an interview with uh, Hayda Brooks uh, from the 1990s. Uh, Hayda Brooks, the legendary jazz, uh, boogie, woogie, and rhythm and blues artist. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. And uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal special radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, September 4th, early morning hours of Monday, September 5th. And uh, we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, uh, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of uh, Tad Dameron and Miles Davis, live in Paris from 1949. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful, beautiful week. next election, we'd like to play an original by Tad Dameron, Good Bait. la plus moderne du jazz. Cet orchestre est composé de Tad Damon, un des pianistes de l'école moderne, Miles Davis à la trompette, James Moody, ancien saxophoniste ténor du fameux Gillespie, notre ami Kenny Clark à la batterie et Stila à la basse.
C'était l'orchestre de Tad Damon et Miles Davis que vous avez entendu dans des improvisations de style tout à fait moderne. Now, don't blame me. Le même orchestre va vous interpréter maintenant Don't blame me.
original written by Tad Dameron, Lady Bird. Thank you. 